Welcome to the CMDA Canada podcast. Today's podcast features highlights from our No Options, No Choice conference in Moncton, including an introduction from CMDA Canada staff member John Dykeman, a keynote presentation from CMDA Canada Executive Director Larry Worthen, and a short selection of the discussion from our panel. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Pastor Timothy Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. When Western society believed in a world that was mysterious and unknowable by reason, and in a God who was glorious and ineffable, the problem of evil was, quote, less acute. He says that in these times, we were humbler about our ability to understand the world. Keller goes on to say that in the 18th century, there was a mindset shift in which we began to think we could understand everything there is to know through our own minds and reason. He says that we became confident of our powers of exhaustive observation, and this conviction changed the way that human beings regarded suffering. And to paraphrase his his last little bit of what he was saying, as a result of all this, in our own mind's eye, evil became a bigger problem. Medical assistance in dying, or should I say physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, have become our nation's response to profound suffering. The arguments that we hear from some of the ethicists, some of the physicians, and other decision makers again and again, is about how made is the compassionate response to suffering. And now, it does not matter if you are suffering with a death that is reasonably foreseeable or suffering with X, Y, or Z illness, those with disabilities, those with chronic health problems, and soon those with mental health disorders, all of these people will be eligible for medical aid in dying. And just two weeks ago, a group of Quebec physicians said to a House of Commons special committee meeting about MAID, uh, they said that, uh, these physicians said that euthanasia should be available to children of all ages if they have severe illnesses. As followers of Jesus, we believe that all of life, all of life is sacred and a gift from God. Our fallen and broken world includes suffering, tremendous suffering. And that suffering can feel like hell. It can be hell. And I do not want to downplay the immense pain that comes about as a result of suffering. However, I want to remind us that God offers us hope, even in our darkest hours. Suffering is God's invitation to meet with him, to trust him even more, and to experience his grace. Suffering as hellish as it can be prepares us for eternity and helps us to realize when we lose everything, all we need is God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Or as one theologian has paraphrased it, blessed are you when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to model a different kind of compassionate response to those who suffer. And we're called to lift up those who suffer. Once again, welcome to our No Options, No Choice conference. My name is John Dykeman. I'm the Director of Family Ministries here at St. Andrew's Moncton. And I'm just so glad that you could be with us all this afternoon. Today we'll be exploring the injustice that Canadians face in accessing care and services and the impact that this has on their choice as they consider made. Not having sufficient access to healthcare options has led some people to even choose made. And today, we will be exploring this topic and what we can do as a response. Our lead sponsors for this conference are the Christian Medical and Dental Association of Canada, or CMDA Canada, who has been at the forefront of advocating against the practice, against the practice of euthanasia and its impact on physicians and patients. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada is our other uh, lead sponsor, and they've been a longtime ally, ally of CMDA Canada, and uh, they're with us. We have Sheldon with us here this morning or this afternoon. And I want to thank CMDA Canada and the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and the people here of St. Andrews in helping us to make this conference possible. So we're going to turn our attention now to our keynote uh, speaker time. And uh, our keynote speaker is Larry Worthen. Larry is the executive director of the Christian Medical Dental Association of Canada. Uh, he is a, he's a uh, lawyer. Uh, he's got a, a law degree from Dalhousie University. He's also a deacon in the Catholic Church, and uh, he also holds a master's in theological studies. And he's served in various nonprofit organizations as the executive director, and prior to serving with CMDA Canada, Larry worked as a manager in the Department of Justi Justice for the Nova Scotia Provincial, Ju uh, Provincial Government. I want to share a story, not from my work at CMDA, but from my work as a, uh, a chaplain, as a deacon in the Catholic Church. Uh, there was a man that I knew, I used to ride the bus with him, and uh, as his life went on, uh, he decided to uh, turn to Christ and become a member of the church, and he asked me to be his uh, his sponsor into the church, and I did so happily, but was sad to find out that he had terminal esophageal cancer. And he, he came to me at one point where, after the doctors had told him that he was palliative, and we had a chat, and he said, Larry, I have tremendous support, but I need to know that you will be there for me if things get really rough. I said, of course, I'll be there for you. I'd be honored to be there for you. He said, I won't bother you a lot, but he said, when I call, you need to answer my call. So I said, sure. So I heard from his son that he was not doing well, and he, his, his life expectancy was measured in weeks as opposed to months. And uh, sure enough, early on a Friday morning, I got a Zoom call from him, and uh, we talked on Zoom. And I'd never seen him so upset and distraught. He was crying. He was upset. Uh, that morning, he had had a crisis. Uh, he was being uh, cared for at home by his wife. He had gone to the washroom, and he had fallen off the toilet and couldn't get back on. And uh, so he waited for half an hour on the floor of the bathroom until uh, they could get help for him from paramedics. 
and so this was totally, totally upsetting for him, and that's why he called me. And so I listened to him for a while, and he, I said, what's really bothering you? He said, I don't want to be a burden to my wife. And I said, well, have you talked to her about that? How does she feel? And he said, yes, I talked to her, and she said she loves me, and, and she's here for me, and, and her greatest desire is to care for me at this point in my life. And I said to him, you know, I said, you know, I have a theory about why you're so upset. He said, what's that? I said, well, you've done really well all along as you've been through this period of, of dying, and, but you've had losses all along the way. You've been able to cope with them. But this is a lot of loss in a short space of time. And, and you know, he, that resonated with him. And he started to calm down a bit. And I said, you know, this is actually the bravest point of your illness because you were there on the floor feeling very vulnerable. But I said, you know, the, the fact that you were able to experience the love of God and the love of your wife was a great gift. And that seemed to calm him down. Well, within a few days, he was into uh, the hospice in Halifax, and they got me in, even though COVID was going on, and I prayed with him. And the whole time I was praying, he was holding onto my hand. Even though he didn't appear to be conscious, conscious he was able to listen. And when I went to go, he didn't want to let go of my hand. And I said, thank you for being my friend. And well, I prayed with him, and then, and then that was the last I saw him alive. Then I got to do his interment. Now, what was really chilling after I began to think about this was that his situation would have changed radically if he had had the same conversation with a physician who was in favor of euthanasia. Did you know that they do annual report on, on euthanasia in Canada? And in that report for the last year that was recorded, uh, I believe it was 35.9% of people gave as their reason for made uh, that they didn't want to be a burden on their family. What this illustrates for you, and I want to do it in as simple a way as possible, is to demonstrate how uh, people can be affected when they're in these vulnerable situations simply by the person who is counseling them. You see, if someone had spoken to him and had heard that his concern was not being a burden to his wife, they could have said, well, I have, you know, euthanasia made is a way that you could stop being a burden to your wife today. There's no waiting period anymore. That could happen within 24 hours. This individual could very well easily have been influenced in that direction. You see, the whole purpose behind the No Options, No Choice project is to deal with the myth of the autonomous patient, the fully autonomous patient. You see, the way that euthanasia was promoted at the very beginning in Canada was through some very prominent individuals who said they wanted made. Do you remember Gloria Taylor? 
She was one of the plaintiffs in the Carter case. Gloria Taylor was a, a grandmother, a very active, very capable woman, uh, obviously was articulate, could speak to the media, and had had months and years to think about her decision. She had all the support in the world. And so when the Canadian public saw Gloria Taylor, they said, well, why not? This woman certainly knows what she wants. Why can't she be allowed to have control over this aspect of her life? The other person who dramatically changed public opinion in Canada was Dr. Don Lowe, again, a physician who had tackled the SARS epidemic. His wife was a producer with the CBC. Again, very well connected, knew about the services, wealthy, able to make decisions about his life and death. Canadians looked at Don Lowe and they said, why not let him? But the problem is, and the reason CMDA was opposed to the legalization from the very beginning, is that you can't create a system that allows the Gloria Taylors and the Don Lowe's and also provides protection for vulnerable people against their own desire to end their suffering, when in fact there could very well be alternatives that could allow them to carry on and to live, uh, to, to live their life. See, that's the whole problem. You think about my friend at a very vulnerable point, there couldn't be anything more different than Gloria Taylor in his situation. Yet this system uh, would allow him to choose uh, 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 assisted suicide uh, when in fact uh, what he may be in need of is support and care. So what have been the implications of patient care? I can say from my work in dealing with our members across Canada that there are significant changes happening in the healthcare system that will affect the way all of us are cared for uh, in Canada. A recent article in the Globe and Mail was, provided this quote from prominent palliative care physician Leonie Herks. Leonie said that many palliative care services have had to integrate MAID into their programs to receive funding. And as a result, already scarce resources have been diverted to support MAID services. And tragically, uh, too many physicians have told me stories of patients who've opted for MAID due to lack of adequate palliative home care services. The second thing that doctors have noticed is that uh, sometimes they will go and speak to a patient with the patient's consent. The patient might have previously wanted to choose MAID, and then the physician has gone and spoken to them and the patient and offered alternatives, and the patient has decided against it. Uh, our doctors report that they can often be criticized by their peers and by family members for this intervention with patients. Sometimes people can be so sure that they almost begin to plan on the maid, and it becomes a fait accompli, and anyone who stands in the way of that is accused of talking a patient out of it. 
Sometimes physicians can be worried about a college complaint because, of course, it's against re the regula regulatory bodies for doctors uh, to, try to talk patients out of taking that route. And I've also directly heard stories of third parties, like chaplains uh, and even um, uh, lawyers who are substitute decision makers, being criticized by medical staff for intervening with a patient uh, and the patient eventually changing their mind about whether or not they wanted made. See, the reality is that none of us is an island. None of us is completely autonomous. We all are part, we are all here because of a network of support that we have. Uh, and the concern is that by putting all of the focus on the patient, uh, the patient can be in a very vulnerable situation. The patient might not have access to alternatives. Uh, the patient uh, needs to be supported and encouraged to decide to live. The problem has been made even more severe with these serious challenges to healthcare brought about by COVID-19. Uh, there have been numerous stories out of Ontario of patients who were sent for assessments. They expressed interest in MAID. They were sent for assessments without receiving any counselling. When the assessors meet, the assessors will say, we do not provide counselling. The assessor's job is to determine whether or not the criteria required for MAID exist. And those criteria are quite subjective and it's all based upon the individual subjective decision of the physician as to whether the criteria exist. Do you understand? The average person thinks that there's some kind of extensive process that people go through. These assessments can take place in a half an hour or an hour by someone who might not even be the person's family physician. And incidentally, there was, there was a, a, an article this week in the National Post talking about how the demand for MAID is growing so fast they can't find doctors, enough doctors, to provide it. The doctors cite, first of all, there's only a small percentage, we estimate about 1% of doctors in Ontario are even doing assessments. But the doctors cite moral distress in being involved in multiple uh, made requests. Some doctors that we know of have done more than 300. So they cite moral distress. Some of the doctors are saying, we're okay doing uh, uh, made for patients where death is reasonably foreseeable, but we refuse to, to do it to disabled people and people with psychiatric illness. Even those who provide made are concerned about the expansion of made. One physician that I spoke to shared a story about a patient who had requested MAID. This doctor had been called in to do a palliative care consult. And he began to talk to the patient, why is it you want MAID? Well, she said, I've been told by the social workers that I'm going to have to go to a nursing home. And I refuse to go to a nursing home, so I want MAID. He said, where were you living before you came into hospital? She had been living at a Catholic-run chronic care hospital and she had gotten uh, COVID, and they sent her to this acute care hospital. 
And then, of course, the social workers met with her and they assessed her for nursing home care. He said, well, were you happy at the chronic care hospital? She said, very happy there. He said, what if I could get you back to that chronic care hospital? How would you feel then? She said, well, I wouldn't need maid. So he happened to have a contact at that Catholic hospital. He contacted them, explained the situation, and they were able to get that patient back into that hospital as opposed to a nursing home. She continues to live today. See, my question is, with the demands of the current healthcare system, who is going to take the time with the patients to work those things out? Do you understand the problem? The demands on our healthcare system are huge. Even before COVID, they were huge. Patients will sometimes suggest MAID because they don't know another way to resolve their problem. And I know that the assessors, when they assess, they have to talk about alternatives. They're required to do that. But who in the hospital staff has the time to sit and listen to the patient at length to determine what their inner conflict, their inner needs are, their, 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 goal, their challenges, their worries, their anxieties? And who is there to help them find a way to make things work? You saw in Tracy's video where she talked about the woman with environmental illness. What a sad and tragic story. This woman had environmental illness. She was living in a housing complex where they would not change her, her lodging to make it possible for her. And during COVID, she was basically confined to a room which she had duct taped to make sure that the air was clear. She decided to choose MAID, which she qualified for, but she left a videotape with her family, and she asked the videotape be passed to uh, Avis Favaro at CTV News. And Avis, God bless her, has taken this on and has made us aware of this problem. But how many others are out there? How many others are out there falling between the cracks? So, that's discouraging and depressing, but I want to talk about something optimistic, and that is that we did a 2021 poll with Angus Reid in Ontario, and we discovered that 55% of respondents to that survey indicated that they were concerned that disabled people would choose MAID because there were insufficient alternatives. 55% of the people who responded to the survey were concerned that people would choose MAID because there are insufficient alternatives. And 60% in the same poll felt that there was public opinion, general public opinion, that a disabled life was not as valuable as an able-bodied life. See, Tracy talks about this in the video, that if you're a person with a disability in Canada... And obviously there is an attitude that a, a life with a disability is not as valuable as an able-bodied life. Sooner or later you internalize that. So when you 
reach a crisis, you're tempted to say to yourself, well, maybe I should just give up. But the good news is that 55% of the people who responded to this story, were, story, this survey, were concerned about this. Now others maybe just don't care. But the good news is that Canadians, at least the majority, did care in this case. And it's those people that we need to reach out to with this campaign to help them to see that society needs to respond with adequate services to each of these groups. We have three different videos, three different people. You'll be able to see the other two videos on our website. We have Tracy talking about persons with disabilities. We have Sam talking about uh, people with uh, mental health issues. And Claire talking about people with serious life-threatening illnesses. Each of them described the lack of services in their area and also the tremendous feeling of vulnerability uh, when, they, uh, when they went through the, the medical system and how they needed support and care. You see, we need to ensure that services are available so that people can actively choose life rather than death. We're opposed to MAID. We don't agree with it. We don't agree that it's, in, it's anything that God wants. But unfortunately, our society is such that it is here in Canada. And so we can't stop people from making this choice. But we can do our best to act in a prophetic way to the community uh, and as a community ourselves to make sure that there is support for people in these circumstances. We're simply advocating for patients to make, be able to make real choices by having real options. Now, I just want to say a word about this from a Christian perspective. Uh, because I am a Catholic deacon, and I know most of you here today are Christians, but the reality is this campaign is for people no matter what their faith background is or if they have no faith background at all. We're hoping everyone, even MAID providers, can get involved with this campaign because everyone should be advocating to ensure that people have adequate services so they can make real choices. Choice is what our society is all about after all, right? But from a specifically Christian perspective, we need to wake up as a Christian community. Because the, as, I, as I speak in my own church and as I hear what's going on in other congregations around Canada, there's not a lot of dialogue around this. And there needs to be more dialogue. We need to be aware of what's happening for this very, very important reason. Our God came to earth and suffered. Our God, if you read chapter 25 in Matthew, our God identifies with these vulnerable people. And he says, whatsoever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. Now, for those of you who are Christians... That should keep us up at night. And we should do everything we can to come alongside those individuals, 
not forcing them. Everyone thinks you're trying to force their ideas on everybody. I don't mean to force anybody, but I mean to provide compassion and support and advocacy for individuals who are in these circumstances so they know the value of their life, which comes from God. Isn't that what we're all about? Isn't that why we Christians are here today? Because we've been touched, we know the value of our lives, we've experienced the love of God. It should trouble us that there are people out there who are considering death because their life has become unlivable. So what can we do? First of all, we need you to get down on your knees and pray. Pray for this program. There's already controversy around this program. There's already people who would like to see it stopped. Please pray for this program. Please pray that this word gets out, that we can get our advertising out on social media, that we can reach out. If there are any groups that you're involved with, any churches that you're involved with, where you could, like, please leave us your email address. If you haven't left it when you signed up or on the way in, please leave it on the way out. We'll send you marketing materials that can be sent out in your churches to any other list that you have, to any other people that you know. Put it on your Facebook page. Sign up yourself. That's how we can get the word out about this important important project. And the other thing, uh, I'm really glad that the representatives are here from the EFC today because they've developed some excellent programs for churches to reach out to vulnerable people in the, in, within the congregations and also within the area served by the parish. How can you reach out to somebody who's in palliative care? How can you reach out to someone who's living with a disability? What can you do as a Christian community to come around them so they know in a tangible way the love of Christ and so they can begin to believe again that life is worth living? And keep in touch with us. Like I said, leave your email. We'll be able to communicate to you to tell you how the campaign is going. There's a, a real reluctance amongst Canadians. You know how Canadians are. We, we're so nice, we don't like to be involved with anything controversial. Right? But that's to our own detriment. And this is really shouldn't be that controversial. We're just saying we want people to have valid options so they have valid choices. We think it's a sad thing when people choose to die when if we had just supported them and drawn around them, they could live. You know, in the very early years of the church, back in the Roman times, when we were a minority and very persecuted, the pagans believed that it was a good thing to leave infants exposed all night to be devoured by animals. They would just throw the infant in the woods as a way to worship the pagan gods. And Christians would sneak into the woods, pick up the children, and raise them as their own. Okay, we have a society that's becoming more and more and more secular. 
Are we just going to keep quiet and just let things progress? Or are we going to be the body of Christ and reach out to find those people who are in danger of death and to care for them? I think you know what Christ would do. God bless. We're going to move into our time of our panel discussion. So we have uh, four people with us who will be on the panel discussion today. Uh, we've got uh, Heather Hughes. She's the executive director of uh, New Brunswick Right to Life. Uh, she's worked diligently to educate New Brunswickers about the value of human life fr from conception to natural death. Heather brings with her many years of business, government, and nonprofit non experience and has a heart for the vulnerable, marginalized, and disabled people. She has worked for, for the Premier's Council on the status of disabled persons and for the Neil Squire Society, which helps people with physical disabilities secure meaningful employment. She's an avid volunteer, and Heather has generously donated her time for various organizations and associations for decades, including producing and hosting a current events program on Christian radio station for the last six years. She's got an educational background in business and economics, and Heather understands how money is influencing public policy and the direction of healthcare delivery. We also have on our panel uh, Larry Worthen, who's going to be joining us on the panel. Adam Stewart, he is a professor, uh, associate professor of sociology at Crandall University right here in Moncton. He holds a graduate degree from Wilfrid Laurier University, also from Western University, and a PhD from the University of Waterloo. And Adam has participated in our panel discussion last year, and we're excited to have him back again this year. And Dr. Tina Frizzle, she is a family medicine physician from Amherst, Nova Scotia. She's a graduate from Dalhousie University School of Medicine and has a great deal of work caring for patients in the final stages of life. We just watched that video from uh, Dr. Margaret Cottle, who is a palliative uh, care physician in Vancouver. And she said in the video, she said, despite the fact that people can get made anywhere that they want to, the government will pay someone travel expenses to go to do that, but they don't do that for palliative care. What are your thoughts about that? Tina. I think partially we just need to let that sink in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am blessed uh, to live in a, a province that actually does have um, coverage for physicians to do home visits, um, and including palliative care. Um, now, it's difficult with people having less and less uh, resources and more and more people to look after. So there's more patients without uh, physicians. And I would say, if you have one palliative care physician for 30,000 people, and they live within a two-hour um, stretch, you know, if you can care for more people in a centralized area, you're probably limited in how much you can travel, mm. even if you have coverage. Mm. Um, so I think, I think the biggest thing is there's a reliance on um, formal services is, is part of what has um, brought our society to this point. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. And I don't know if this is on. I think we're good, yeah. Okay, thank you, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. I also am like Tracy. 
I am a person that has a disability, but I always hesitate to say that I'm disabled mm. because of the stigma that is attached. The different, the one thing that Tracy and I have in common is that, that we both have a voice. Many in the disabled community do not have the voice. And Canada used to be a caring and compassionate country where this was not an option. So is it real? It's very real. I've gone through certain stages in my life where things have been more difficult. I've had to seek medical attention outside of Canada. I've been to Texas twice. I had the support of my mother who took me the first time because I was not able to look after myself. I was, before I got so sick, I had seen multiple doctors who tried their very best here and they were unable to help me. So thankfully, I was able to remortgage my house. My church had a fundraiser. I had family and friends that donated money and I was able to find some place that could help me. I'm here today because of that, because of determination, because of family support, because of doctors admitting they didn't know what to do with me. And I say praise God because I think it was an answer to prayer as well, but I'm living proof that there are options available, there must always be options available, and my quality of life compared to your quality of life do not have to be the same. That's one thing we need to recognize as a society. My quality of life and your quality of life do not need to be the same, but I must be allowed to achieve the quality of life so that I can have the best life possible. And asking somebody to kill me should never be an option. I mean, I think if we're going to change the culture, yeah. we have to uh, also be addressing the teaching that's going on in universities. Um, I'm going to come at that from a side angle, which is interesting, because as I was uh, preparing for today and, and sitting, I thought to myself, um, I wonder if people realize how much of an influence they have on who actually gets into medical school and nursing and what their care is like when they, when they become a professional. So it's interesting that I think uh, we have, um, what would you say it, uh, non-human insight that comes to us occasionally. And so what I would... What I would challenge you is that if you have people who are considering careers in healthcare, um, rather than discourage them from it because it's overwhelming or you know, going to take them away from you for a while, that you support them with your utmost ability and that you challenge them when you, when you find that they're thinking um, outside of, of what you had known to be their core values um, and then that you challenge the status quo or the system um, to allow them to, to function within it. I just want to echo what Tina is saying. Uh, I think there's a great danger in, uh, in uh, because we're immersed in the media, we assume that what we hear in the media is consistent with the majority thinking in Canada. Uh, it's not. Uh, we did, uh, again, with our Angus Reid survey we did last year, we found that 85% of respondents were in favour of conscience protection legislation in Ontario for euthanasia. 
85%. Uh, but yet the politicians were not eager to go in that direction because they knew that the media would be very negative. So I would urge you to have faith that Christ is working in our culture, in our day, and I want to echo what Tina has said. If you know of anyone who feels like they're being called into medicine or into uh, other nursing or whatever, that you encourage them, uh, because this thing is only uh, this thing has only gotten out of control because people have just said, oh, I'm too scared to say anything, or I'm too scared to write my MLA, or, you know, I could never get involved in this. I don't even want to put anything on my Facebook page because I'll get criticized. Well, that's what the problem is. The problem is with you and I not having the courage to stand up and just say, look, there's another way of looking at this. I think we have to articulate it. The CMDA Canada has uh, chaplains in 14 different medical schools across Canada who are there to support Christian students and other students in uh, the uh, teaching of traditional uh, uh, Christian morality. And, and we're there to support people. So I think the key is we have to get past this fear, this paralyzing fear that we all have, uh, and everyone has it, uh, about doing something that's going to be politically incorrect and end up getting cancelled. Um, if we don't, our society is not going to be a very healthy one, and you can see what the byproduct of that is. Adam, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about how, you know, it was only, you know, six years ago where medical aid and dying became legal in Canada, 2016. Um, and then I think at that time, people were saying, oh, there's safeguards in place, you know, we're gonna, it's going to be okay. It's only for those who have impending death. Uh, but now we're seeing it's made available uh, to, to populations that at the time when it made, was made legal, we thought it was unthinkable. Um, did you foresee that happening when made uh, became legal in Canada? Is this a slope that you thought that would, would happen? Uh, it's not something that I, <clears throat> excuse me, devoted a lot of time to thinking about until mm. the revisions were announced, mm. and that w was what kind of activated me being more aware about this. But my perspective might be a little different, I mean, uh, given what I do. So I, I, just, I think it's we, as Christians, have actually misdirected uh, we've misdiagnosed the source of the problem. Mm. And I don't actually think uh, it's a culture of death or it's a conspiracy mm. or it's a, a powerful cabal that wants to push that. There's elements where we could say that, you know, well, that's in play. I, I think it's an underlying values mm. shift that we've mm. been experiencing. Um, I mean, it depends how far you want to go back uh, mm. since the fourth century. <laughs> the 13th century, the 16th century, progressively, uh, we have been in the West moving in a direction where our decisions about how we behave in every aspect of life, we've been pushing them further and further outside of the domain of traditional values, mm. be they Christian uh, or even regional sort of values. As we've moved into... Uh, modernity, the thing that's allowed us to develop med medicine 
and other advanced technologies is doing that, allowing universities to work outside of the auspices of the church, which didn't want them to ask certain questions, uh, creating uh, a relatively recent phenomenon in history, uh, the ability of physicians to self-regulate themselves so that they can have autonomy to pursue methods of treatment that don't necessarily align with the dominant values. These are not taken for granted things. These, this is a slow process. Yeah. And so that value, what sociologists call technique, is allowing every aspect of life, in every sphere of our life, we tend to pursue the most efficient means of, of completing the goals of that system. Mm. Wow. And what's the goal of healthcare? Well, I can't talk, I can only talk historically. Uh, treatment, of course, but, but primarily, actually, it's, it's the, the, the limiting of suffering and the uh, extension of um, what we consider to be, which is socially constructed normal functioning. Mm. What's the logical end of that system if it's able to operate under its own rationale without other values coming in, not just from Christianity, but from even other spheres of government and public life? Mm. The most efficient way to end some people's suffering is to kill them. Yeah. Right? So uh, it's, it's, to say it was inevitable is, is, is too simplistic, but... Um, as sociologists, we can kind of look and see, okay, it's just a matter of time to sort of these certain things probably happen, mm. not just in healthcare, because they are the logical extension of that logic within that system. Mm. Uh, so, Adam, you're, you're kind of saying, like, if eliminating suffering by death is the most efficient process to eliminate suffering, it's just a matter of time for us to kind of, as a society, to embrace that as a solution to suffering. Doesn't that reveal that we have beliefs about what happens when we die? It has a lot of implications. It, it, it reveals a lot about our values. And as Christians, too, we actually, it, we're not, we talked about this last year, we're not over and against this entirely. We have become aware that we need to take that position, but we have contributed to the same sort of society that makes this, this possible. And it, we participate in consumerism and globalization, all these other methods that um, treat humans as, as commodities. Mm. And in Canada, your value as a person, according to the government of Canada, is as a worker. Uh, because we live in a wage-earning-based society. If you don't earn a wage, um, you're of little value. There's not a lot of social policy. One of the worst... Uh, uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, 8th or 10th, depending on how you want to measure it. And we usually score in about the 30s for various social provisions, particularly with children. We have the highest rate. We, we have a higher rate of child hunger than uh, what we might call some developing or second sort of second world countries. Um, so, yeah, there's these values we have that definitely play out in this, mm. but, but again, I think, I think it's much worse than what we, we think, uh, because w we are actually facilitating it through continuing to behave in a way that's not Christian in every sphere of life, mm. right? We have our work over here. How do we treat our employees? And we have our economic policy. It's, I mean, the reason you can buy, we can have as much stuff as we have is because people somewhere else in the world are exploited to provide it. Mm. Um, every cell phone here, every computer, 
uh, probably has some rare earth mineral in it that was mined by a, a child or someone in forced labor. It is so complex mm. that to disentangle one issue, mm. uh, although we need to do it as witnesses uh, right, to the gospel, mm. uh, is very, very difficult. Mm. We, we, a more holistic approach would be starting to ask questions about everything we do. Mm. Is this, you know, what's our purpose as people? What, what does God want us to do? What's our value? Mm. And every decision. Mm. Not just picking the ones that, you Are know. And, and or, so I think yeah. if we do this kind of piecemeal approach, um, although we have to in the moment when these things are developing, mm. right, it, it, we're, we're not going to have the same uh, effectiveness because we're going to keep moving in a certain direction across the board. Mm. And we see that. Um, we do not look like Christians did, you know, for the first four centuries of, right. of Christian history. Uh, Larry, you know, kind of stole my thunder there, but the, the, one of the main reasons Christians were persecuted was because of their opposition to violence and death. Uh, child exposure was one. Fighting, uh, they would famously, some examples of, you know, having to fight in Colosseum-type scenarios, and Christians wouldn't. They would just let themselves be be slaughtered. They would not participate in the military. We have examples of the centurion and others, but after the first century, no, it wasn't until mm. the sort of Constantinian settlement when the church became the dominant social power and linked with the state, we have this gradual erosion that pushes traditional Christian values outside of the influence mm. of these other spheres. And we we're doing that. Mm. And so we get, we're getting what we deserve in one way. It's a very horrific way to think about it. But this is going to, this, solving this or any other problem uh, that we think, you know, our society is moving in a direction that opposes our values, we have to really reorient how we think about everything mm. and how we live and what implications it has, which is very, very challenging. So it's not a very hopeful message. But the French uh, sociologist Jacques Ellul, uh, he said, he, he was a, what he called a Christian anarchist. And what he meant by that was not violence, very strongly opposed to violence. He said, because governments and the way that they've emerged in the modern period are, again, aligned with this certain value of the human being as an economic unit, we actually can't meaningfully engage with them. We have to, in terms of cooperating mm. with them, we have to be a witness against whatever you want, whatever particular problem it is. Right. And that's a very, very challenging thing to do because we don't like to conflict, particularly right. Canadians. Right. And so we give a smaller group power to make these decisions and we sort of let them happen and we change our everything else in our lives to conform to that. So I'm just very cautious about blaming one thing or one way of thinking. This right. is, We're all it, sinful. Yeah. yeah, we need God's grace. If you could f fully fund one program to increase access to services for Canadians, what would it be? Mental health. Okay. Claire? I think it would be anything that 
assists social inclusion because mm. social exclusion is the main reason that people cite for choosing MAID. It's not the illness itself, it's the effects of the illness. And we can mitigate many of those effects through spending money to help inclu uh, uh, increase inclusion. So mm. we do very badly at that. Mm. Um, again, because of this highly individualistic understanding of people mm. as, and, and having moved into an institutionalized care Mm. model. There are many advantages to that. When you have an acute neurological or cardiovascular illness, you can get excellent care. But if you're somewhere where it's chronic, mm. uh, institutionalized care doesn't actually work very well. We tend to, there's a famous book on this uh, written in Canadian history calling this period foisting upon the government. Mm. Uh, there, were, there were no nursing homes in Canada before the late 19th century. Why? Because they didn't need them. Mm. Families looked after their, their elderly. And when we transition into an economy where both people have to work in a family to support themselves, that becomes impossible. Mm -hmm. So there's these deeper structural problems that aren't going to be solved with programming, mm -hmm. but we can, again, shed some light right, and witness by doing that. But mm -hmm. the, the harder work mm. is longer term. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like it calls for conversion. Uh, I just wanted to say that one of the features of our uh, website and our database is that if you have a particular program that you should that you think should be the focus of the government, you can there are sample letters there that you can revise and you can tailor for your own particular uh, your own particular needs. One of the services that we've been advocating for uh, across Canada, but in particular in Ontario, is a service that would provide resources to people who have requested MAID that would uh, be uh, almost what are called navigators, people who could spend time with the patient to determine, or to help them find access to alternatives. And ideally, if the government would provide additional funding with those positions to reach out to some of these folks who are in desperate shape, who need uh, uh, almost like a SWAT team for these individuals to make sure that they have access to these services, okay. I think uh, would be um, um, an, an immediate, it would help with an immediate need. I, uh, you know, I don't believe that any of the safeguards that have been offered for MAID are effective. The only thing they try to safeguard is people being killed without their consent. But in terms of prolonging life, where life can be prolonged, I don't feel that the safeguards really help with that. But uh, 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 there could be a safeguard provided by provincial governments if they would uh, provide the enough individual attention to the patient, and that's a lot of resources, but provided individual attention to the patient to see if there are any workable alternatives that could be brought to bear to save that life. Okay, interesting. Well, I wanna, oh. Traditionally, you know, that would be the family physician's office, just to put a plug in there. Although, um, as we talk about, you know, you, you can't have a body or a house or whatever else with all the different parts, so it's, that's a very difficult question, right? Mm. So you can't really take away many of the parts. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. It is traditionally the family physician's role. Um, as you know, family physicians are overstretched. 
But the other thing too is that we're hearing stories about people who have financial problems or housing problems. So that's why we thought the patient navigators would, be, would have capacity to deal with income issues and housing issues and not just, you know, directing them to an existing medical service. Very good. Well, I want to thank our panel for uh, being with us this afternoon. So thank you all. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the CMDA Canada podcast. Watch for more content in this space coming soon.